actually today will be our mostly last day of new material. So I figure what we can do is review next week. I had asked whether you wanted to review the Monday or Wednesday, but I know some people aren't going to be here Wednesday. So what we'll do is we'll do review both days, probably review the practice exam on Monday. And, and if you're not going to be here on Wednesday, it's a good chance to ask any review questions you want addressed. And then on Wednesday, we'll go over what, what else we want so to talk the, about. The it's, it's homework. It's due. I'm right. Right the That's the thought, yeah. Yeah, it'll be fresh in your mind, right? We can talk about the solutions. Um, okay, so let's see. Uh, so that's the plan. If, if there's material that we don't get to today that I decide I want to talk about, we may do a little bit of that on Monday as well. But um, right now, we're not going to have homework. And uh, this, at least, there's no real new physics involved in what we're talking about today. We're going to talk about photonic devices basically how you take all the different things we've talked about and integrate it into a, a useful package. Um, so I'm just going to show pictures pretty much. And uh, we will drive a few things, but it's nothing new. Um, so the different types of devices that are, are commonly used are commonly integrated into sort of photonic circuits um, are largely used for telecommunications right now. Um, and there's sort of three or four different main functions of devices. Uh, there's optical interconnects that we'll talk about. An interconnect is the photonic equivalent of a wire. So not very interesting, but um, it's basically how waveguides connect different parts of an optical circuit. Uh, doing clever things with those optical interconnects, you can route signals, which is different than switching signals. Does anybody know the difference? I didn't. I, I knew that routers and switches are both things that involve that you can buy at Fry's to control your home network, or, but uh, they're different. A, a router, um, like a switch, moves signals around to different points, and the control that tells the router where to send the signal is embedded in the signal itself. And so for optical routers, that means some property of the optical signal, be it the wavelength, the amplitude, the polarization, some property of the signal will determine what port it gets sent to in a, in a device that has output ports. Um, whereas a switch has a signal routed or, or switched via some external control. So that's an electronic voltage that you can apply to the circuit that shifts the output light between different ports. Or um, the more interesting case, perhaps, is when it's optically controlled. And the presence of an external optical beam will affect the path that a, a, an additional beam takes through the optical circuit. Um, that has some advantages in switching time. With ultra-fast beams, you can get ultra-fast switching times and uh, exceed the switching rate of electronic switches. And then, so those things are commonly done and are, are basically products that exist in our telecommunications infrastructure. And to some extent, you can um, you know, even find some of this functionality in consumer electronics. Maybe not consumer, but it's relatively common uh, stuff. Then we'll sort of end by talking about some of the building blocks for building like an optical computer, or something that's a little bit more far-fetched, or at least further on the horizon. Um, so we can talk about some of the building blocks. Those are demonstrable. Um, basically, what you need to build logic is optical bistability, or you need bistability. You need a flip-flop. The electronic equivalent or is a well, the electronic version of a flip-flop. Optical version of an electronic flip-flop is what you need to build an optical computer. Uh, we'll show how that gives rise to logic and memory. Um, although we won't really go any further than that. Okay, so interconnects are basically your equivalent of wires. They're just waveguides that uh, steer the light from one place to another. We've talked about waveguides. So um, when we did, we talked about a few of the different configurations that a waveguide could have. Um, so this just shows 
the way a waveguide can be split. Uh, we call this something like a T-coupler. We have an input on the left and then two outputs on the right. And this is splitting the wavefront of the light. So it's, it's just physically uh, allowing the light to travel down two different paths. Um, you can generalize this to some arbitrary number of outputs. You can run it in reverse, call it a fan out or a fan in. And you can connect um, multiple input ports to multiple output ports, which is what's done on the bottom here. And that sort of in a block diagram form describes what a router or switch is going to look like. It's a bunch of input ports, a bunch of output ports, and then some method for controlling what inputs go to what output. And without that method, this is just what we call a coupler. Um, so something like this, a 3dB coupler, uh, has two input ports on the left, two output ports on the right, and 3dB suggests 50% coupling. So your input would be equally split among the two outputs, regardless of which input port it came in. And you can build these with sort of arbitrary splitting ratios. And so they're drawn here all as uh, sort of fan out couplers, but you can also build these with uh, using directional couplers. If you recall, when we talked about waveguides, we showed how two waveguides brought close together could allow energy to couple from one to the other, and that could be the mechanism that provides the coupling um, between the two devices, although they're drawn here just basically in, func in a block diagram form. Um, you can describe the transfer function of these block diagrams by some transmission coefficient from each input port to each output port. So each input port has a transfer coefficient to each output port. So if there's multiple input ports, then this becomes a vector, this becomes a matrix, and this becomes your output vector. And if you have coherent light, then light going into all of your input ports can add up coherently at a given output port. You add up the fields. And so we would have this expression, which describes the field at the output port. It's the sum <coughs> of all the different input ports times their coupling coefficient to that output port. If you have incoherent light, then it doesn't make sense to add the fields. Since they're incoherent, it makes sense to add the powers. So in that case, we'd use the same coupling coefficients, but we want them to represent the power going from the input to the output. So we'd use that, those individual coefficients squared. So that's not the matrix squared. That's the individual elements squared. And that describes the coupling from input power to output power then. So, and, and this is true as well in free space optics. You can describe a beam splitter this way or a mirror. It's partially transmissive. Oh, here? Yeah. Well, I don't know why it's cut off. That's from your book. Oh, so. Yeah. Uh, I, I can draw a couple of them. A crossover? Not very exciting. It's just the physical orientation of your input and output ports gets reversed. But it's nothing more than this port being connected to that one, this port being connected to that one. But there's no interaction Im implied here. So if you like, I could try to indicate that. Um, you know, so that that's really not f from a physicist's point of view. That's nothing interesting. From you know, if you're building a device like uh, it's going to couple to, um, you know, if you have some sort of connector on a multi-port device and you need to couple two of them together, a crossover would let you um, right, simulate. That's like if you've ever make any assumptions. If you ever had to like connect two computers together with an Ethernet cable, you need a crossover Ethernet cable because they need to think that they're talking to the output of, a, of an Ethernet port, not the input of a computer. Um, the shift, I think, is literally just moving the uh, ports down one, the crossover. Um, 
I don't know. I don't know. I can't see it. Um, I, th I think, I'm guessing though, that the next <coughs> slide or so when we talk, well, not the, quite the next slide, but we'll talk about um, circulators and non-reciprocal devices. That might be what that reversal crossover was. Um, okay, so a couple properties, just terms that are used to describe these devices. Uh, the meaning of the terms is highly dependent on how you define them. And in fact, a lot of the same quantities can be described by multiple terms depending on the context in which they're described in. But some of the terms you might hear are insertion loss, splitting ratio crosstalks, crosstalk excess loss. So insertion loss is usually um, how much power is lost when you put the device in, meaning from your input to what's your output, you stick your device in, presumably you get less power at the output. Uh, certainly shouldn't get more if it's a passive device. So the insertion loss would be fraction of the power that continues to be transmitted after you put the uh, device in place. So that's usually expressed in dB. And maybe it's a little bit, uh, let's see, the, it's probably a misnomer to call it a loss. In fact, it's probably more accurately called the transmission because a insertion loss of say 0.1 dB would suggest, let's see, what would that suggest? Um, an insertion loss of 0 dB would be 100% transmission. Um, an insertion loss of, well, yeah, let me just leave it at that. Um, so splitting ratio, we mentioned, I mentioned a 3 dB splitter. It's the fraction of the power that gets from an input port that gets uh, passed to each output port. Um, and that's assuming that there's equal power at all the output ports from any given input port. If that's not the case, you might have a more complex definition of the splitting ratio. Crosstalk is the amount of coupling from one input port to an output port that's not intended to have connection to that input port. Okay, so we call it crosstalk. We could also call it the splitting ratio. And it's really the same thing. It's the coupling from an input port to an output port has a different name because it's not a desired coupling. Excess loss is just the difference between the input power and the output power. So if your device itself is absorbing some power, then you're not going to have uh, you're not going to have that a unitary transmission matrix. <coughs> okay, so I'm going to skip over this exercise. And talk about uh, first some non-reciprocal devices. So reciprocal means same in both directions. So non-reciprocal means obviously different in both directions. The sort of one case where we've encountered this before is with uh, Faraday rotators. In Faraday rotators, um, we had a magnetic field that when you change the direction of propagation of the light, the magnetic field was an external field that uh, doesn't change direction. And that's the only thing that prevents changing the direction of the light from being ti true time reversal symmetry. Um, so likewise, in integrated circuits, the non-reciprocal devices usually are based on the Faraday effect. Um, this is an example of what you might call a diode. It's an isolator, uh, much like our Faraday isolator, but here in block diagram, it just shows that Light, or light propagating in one direction is transmitted, in the other direction it's blocked. You might say the insertion loss in the forward direction is 0 dB, in the reverse direction it's maybe 30 dB or some large value, some large amount of loss. Um, so this is sort of like our Faraday isolator. I think we had a homework problem in the Faraday isolator, so you're pretty familiar with behavior. and. Um, Typically, a Faraday isolator looks something like this, where you've got a half-wave plate, a Faraday rotator, and then a couple polarizing beam splitting cubes. 
polarizing beam splitting cubes. So light that goes in and passes through this polarizing beam splitter um, by design should transmit through the system. But light going in the other direction should be rejected there. So if we draw that, if we call that a circulator, um, the reason you call that a circulator is um, it's often used if you need to circulate light through some, some uh, system and then collect the return light. This, this is a way of collecting the return light, separating it off from the input light. I guess that's the, that's the term, and it's sort of shown schematically here that um, if we have ports 1, 2, 3, and 4, by the way, this has four ports too. Let's see if I can map them. Uh, port 1 is our input, and port 2 is the output there. If port 2 comes back, it goes out port 3. So this is port 3. If we send light in port 3, it goes to port 4. That makes sense. If we send light in port 3, it's going to go through here. And if its polarization state is not changed by this, it should be rejected and go there. That's port 4. And light going through port 4 should go out port 1. And that's shown there. So whether you're building a, an integrated device using fiber optics or waveguides, uh, this type of block diagram is usually used to indicate a Faraday isolator or circulator. Okay, and so this is the same thing as our isolator. It's just ports three and four are accessible, meaning there's uh, an isolator physically looks like this, but your device may not have a connection at port three or four. There may just be essentially a beam block dumping the power. And if that's the case, this is just our, our uh, optical diode. Okay, so here's some more pictures of those different types of now, reciprocal interconnects. I showed a bunch of geometries based on this T-coupler, where the wavefront is physically split. Um, these directional couplers I mentioned are also a uh, possibility for doing the same thing. And in general, you can have multiple couplers grouped together in what we call a star coupler. We'll see a couple examples of devices <coughs> that use star couplers. And this is drawn for integrated circuits where it's fabricated on a chip. We have similar devices built out of fibers. Okay, so one of the uh, one of the locations that optical interconnects find their find a home uh, currently, or at least are being investigated for currently, is not all optical computers where you have to move uh, light around because you're processing the light, but rather um, to move what would be electronic signals around on an electronic signal processor and a microchip, um, where you have very, very many circuits. So VLSI, very large scale integration. Um, as you increase the density of electronic interconnects, there are some limitations that you run into. Uh, one is size, so wires can't pass through each other, or if they do, they short each other out, whereas optical interconnects can. Photons or bosons, they pass right through each other, don't interfere with each other. Um, electronic wires have certain limitations that come from the geometry of putting a piece of metal right above a grounding plane and some circuit board. You have capacitance issues because of that uh, 
proximity to a grounding plane, you also have resistance that becomes more and more significant as the size of the wires get smaller. Um, so as you have resistance and capacitance, that means an RC time constant. That means higher frequency signals will get attenuated propagating through the wires. So that's avoided by optical interconnects. Um, another issue that comes from trying to route lots of electronic interconnects between different points on the circuit that's with non-uniform between the different points and at very high speed um, that introduces a, what can potentially be a significant delay between signals and circuits so you run into you're trying to have simultaneously at different parts of the circuit. Um, that can largely be avoided through, through some uh, clever use of, of optics, particularly for uh, the clock that syncs everything. Instead of routing a single all through the circuit, you can basically flash a light um, in any place where you need a clock. You can put a photo detector and just use the signal coming from that photo detector as your clock. Right, and then you have the path from the uh, light source rather than having uh, steered around them on wires that go all over the place. Yeah, yeah. yeah but you, can, you can minimize that because it's a direct path as opposed to a path that's, that's uh, routed. And particularly, you may have um, multiple parts, imagine in a computer, you may have a graphics processor over here, a microprocessor over here, they're separated by, you know, a foot. Um, and the routing may go through a motherboard that's you know, over, over here. Maybe in, you know, depending on the case design of the computer manufacturer, there may be different differences. Whereas, um, you know, if you're, well, there's a, there's a picture of it in the next slide um, here. If you're circuit, if your electronic circuit has a uh, photo detector, see photo detectors at whatever, uh, here's a better picture, photo detectors at whatever point you need to have your clock, and then you have your pulse light source that's providing that clock information. This shows it with a hologram. You really don't need to uh, understand the hologram part of this. You just flash the light off of, a, <coughs> uh, say, a scattering surface up here, a screen. Right, the path length difference between these different points is is uh, is minimal compared to connecting them in series. Um, so this is a, a promising way to connect separated circuits. Um, so this shows it with a uh, free path optical beam. So in that example of you've got your microprocessor over here. Uh, graphics card over here, you could have a free space optical connection between the two and avoid a lot of the issues that come from long runs of very small wires. What's that? Well, yeah, so you'd have to account for that in your design. There's a lot of ways you could deal with that. I say free space. You could have, uh, say, a glass tube and not, well, so this, this shows fibers. Right. This what I, is what I'm calling free space. This may be air that has dust in it, but it could be a block of glass that's not guiding the light. In that sense, it's free space. Um, but by being inside of a material, you're not going to be susceptible to dust. Or, um, otherwise, yeah, you'd have to have enough uh, either enough tolerances to the dust, whether that be through uh, you know, your signal processing and error correction. Or, I mean, if this is just a clock signal, having a large enough beam that, you know, a, a speck of dust passing through uh, does not drop your signal over here at your detector below some threshold, then it, it doesn't matter. Okay, so that's about all I'd say about interconnects. Um, routers pa pass an optical signal between an input port and an output port, and they they direct it to the proper output port based on some property of the signal. 
The one that uh, we'll talk about is wavelength, because uh, perhaps the most common application of optical routers is for wavelength division multiplexing and wavelength division demultiplexing. Um, so those are terms used to describe how multiple, essentially multiple laser sources that each have their own signal imposed on the laser beams get combined into a single beam that gets propagated through a fiber optic. Okay, so this is done in the telecommunications industry to maximize the, uh, the bandwidth transmitted through optical fibers. Okay, so conceptually, these block diagrams show how a beam with multiple, this just shows multiple parameters. Uh, those parameters could be wavelengths. So multiple different wavelengths propagating along the, the fiber get split into different outputs. Each wavelength goes to a different output. Um, the opposite of that is a multiplexer that takes multiple wavelengths at the input and combines them into a single output. Well, I haven't said why or how this occurs yet. Can you? Yes. <laughs> and I'll do it. Uh, well, we'll work through an example. Um, a couple ways you could build a optical multiplexer, demultiplexer. Can you think of anything that physically separates different wavelength components of light? Prism. Prism. Grating does it. So you could build this using a prism or a grating. Um, those aren't necessarily the easiest devices to integrate into a, uh, into a device. Actually, the, the grating, in a sense, there's a, an integrated analog of a grating that uses this star coupler. Let me draw it. You have an input and a fan out. And I'm going to draw this fan out with this particular geometry. So this is not just a block diagram, but it's intended to show a schematic or some sort of cartoon representation of what the, uh, the waves do. Okay, so we've got uh, an input and one, two, three, four, five, six outputs. And my claim is that a device that looks like this can be designed with the appropriate uh, lengths and geometry to separate six different wavelengths here into the six output ports. Any thought on how that might occur? And the hint is this is essentially, this is analogous to a grading. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five. Uh, that I meant to have the same number. Okay. Although, yeah. Four. So what's going on here? So let's just start at the beginning. So I send in light of a particular wavelength. What do you think happens here at this star coupler? Does that do the routing? We don't have, we can have lines there, like a grid. No, no, these, these are waveguides. There's no structure to the waveguide other than the general guiding structure that we normally have. I mean, I haven't talked in much detail about the physics of a star coupler. There's, there's nothing going on here that's not shown. I mean, this is like this, 
white material has one index, the surrounding material has a different index. That's it. Nothing fancier than that. Yeah. Okay, so this is just a splitter. It's not doing anything other than splitting the light equally into all these different paths. Well, so essentially what you have is a waveguide here, a mode propagating in the waveguide. And so that's on the left side of this. On the right side, imagine you have two waveguides like that. And for the moment, we'll neglect how those exactly merge. But those each have their own propagating mode. And this overlaps both of those to some extent and launches modes into both of those. And if you connect them with an adiabatic taper, then you essentially, what's the term? Uh, you have um, a slowly varying envelope of this of this uh, wave function that decays to zero while these build up. Well, so there's, there's, I'm taking some liberty in the, in the diagram, but um, imagine a perfectly symmetric fan out, if you will. Um, Um, or if you like, have it cascaded, if you want to have some 2 to that n. So assuming that you split the light equally, what's different about the light in the different paths when it gets to here? Different path lengths means different phases. So if you have sources along a line at different phases, we call that a phased array. You hear that terminology in uh, RF engineering quite a bit. Antennas are basically can be operated as phased arrays. Uh, Wi-Fi 802.11n circuits can operate as phased array antennas, where they can uh, essentially a signal. If you have multiple antennas, say two antennas, and you're trying to transmit a signal, if you send the signal to both antennas, you essentially get greater, uh, well, you get the antenna pattern of one, which would be isotropic, the antenna pattern of the other, and they sort of add up. If they're in phase, they're going to add up in phase along the line that bisects them. And depending on their separation in the wavelength, you may get them being out of phase at some other angle. So you get an antenna pattern, maybe that looks like this. Yeah, it is. But if you can control the phase of one relative to the other, you can change the relative phase when they add up. Right? So if you add a 180 degree phase shift to this one, instead of adding up constructively here, they add up destructively. Instead of adding up destructively in this direction, they add up constructively. You can steer this antenna pattern. Right? So in a In a Wi-Fi card, that can be useful to steer. And it, certainly with more of these, you get a more directional pattern. You can steer your radiation towards your, what you're trying to communicate with. And that's why multiple element antennas on a roof have to be pointed in a certain direction. They're phased arrays. So this is a phased array. The same signals coming out of these different locations with different phases. And so if this has <coughs> This is E naught due to the I delta phi. It's got an additional phase. This one will have, we'll say, twice that phase. This one will have three times that phase. This one will have four times that phase shift. 
then at some arbitrary point over here, some arbitrary point over here, when we add them up, the electric field at point, I'll call it P, is just going to be the sum of those electric fields. E naught e to the i n delta phi, where n is equal in this case from 0 to 4. Right? And delta phi is k times delta l, so if there's some path length difference in each one of these. And that's a function of wavelength. Okay, so whether you get constructive interference or destructive interference at some point over here, and I should add to this, so that's, those are the sources, and then they also get a propagation delay. And I don't want to bother with going through the geometry and the math, but you can see that it's different for each one. Plus, so I'll just call it k naught rn. I just have to go from 0 to 4. So this is wavelength dependent, and this is position dependent on point P. So there will be positions where the phase shift on each of these, perhaps the easiest way to see it, is if I pick a different colored marker, let's say I want to have a certain wavelength add up constructively right here. I can just trace out a circle centered on that point. And what I need is the additional path length here um, you know it would be, be easier to see. I do it over here. Um, so this additional path length should have this should be the same as the additional path length that this path took. Right. So the phase shift that this path gets should be compensated by the extra distance this path has to go. Um, and it's wavelength dependent. So I'll get different wavelengths adding up in phase at each point. So I mean that would be a I think pretty straightforward homework problem. So just go through the math and calculate. Okay, what would, what wavelengths would, would interfere constructively at each of those points? But it's it's pretty much just uh, general optics stuff, oh, phases and interference. <laughs> I guess what I was getting at is that there's not a lot of electro optics in there. Hence, I'm not. I'm just sort of outlining the the discussion and not trying to solve that. Um, okay, so that's a wavelength division demultiplexer. Demultiplexer. You have a bunch of wavelengths at the input. They get separated into different points at the output. Um, so that's that. Right? You can run the system in reverse and combine the wavelengths in a multiplexer. And then you can combine a demultiplexer and a multiplexer in two different ways. You can have a multiplexer going into a fiber. And at the other end of the fiber, have a demultiplexer. And the advantage there is, let's say you've got 10 different signals you're trying to send across the country. Instead of needing 10 different fibers, you just put them all into one. Or you can put them, you can do the opposite. You can have in the middle of a fiber, you can have split out the, the, uh, the signals and then recombine them. And the reason you might want to do that is you might want to manipulate one of the signals. So you can create what's called an optical add drop multiplexer, where you split up the signals, or split up the different wavelength components, you pull one out, and at this point, since we're talking about block diagrams, we'll call these channels. Each wavelength represents a certain channel that information is being sent on. So you pull out one channel, you might process it, you might just pull it out and, and use it, or you might change it and send it through. Um, you can imagine this as being, um, I don't know, let's say you have, want to have a telephone conversation. 
and you have some network passing by your house, and you don't need to use the entire bandwidth of the network, but one channel you want sent to your house, and the other channel you want sent back into the network. That's essentially what that is. Okay, so um, I mentioned this is commonly used for multiplexing into, into fibers. And we saw last time we calculated the bandwidth of a fiber, glass fiber at 1550 nanometers. Um, I, th or I think I said it was about 35 nanometers um, of bandwidth was available at that, uh, at that particular wavelength. That wavelength is interesting because there are, uh, there's lasers there and there's uh, amplifiers there to amplify signals, erbium-doped fiber amplifiers. But the lasers that are available, indium gallium arsenide phosphate, so you know all about gallium arsenide. Um, so these lasers can be modulated by changing the current. They're, they're diode lasers. You can change the current that pumps them. That changes the amplitude or wavelength, depending on uh, how you arrange it, so amplitude or phase of the laser. And those can be pumped or modulated at about no more than 10 gigabits per second. Well, we can just call it 10 gigahertz if you want. So if you have a bandwidth that's on the order of terabits, what we find last time, 35 nan 40 nanometers was like, uh, say, 6 terabits, something like that. So if you have a fiber that can transmit terabits of information per second or has a terahertz uh, window, but your laser is only able to produce signals at 10 gigabits per second, a much slower rate, or if you like, it's only able to occupy about 10 gigahertz region of that terahertz window. Um, yeah, essentially, you can only fill up, well, you can consider this laser itself one channel. Right? You can put as much information as you can fit onto that channel, that is, you can put about 10 gigabits per second of information onto that laser, that itself may come from multiple different channels. Um, and then you can send that through the fiber. If you want to send more information than that, since you can't modulate that laser faster, you need to have another laser that you modulate, or many more. And so if you arrange each of those lasers to have slightly different frequencies, slightly different wavelengths, you can then combine them and then separate them later on based on their wavelength. And if they all have the same wavelength and you combine them, your information is going to interfere. It's just all going to add up. There's no way to separate it. So, um, so this so. Channel, 100, 100 channels? Uh, let's see. So, One thing is yeah. Yep. So on the order of 100. Yeah. And typically, the wavelength spacing in what's called dense wavelength division multiplexing systems is about 0.8 nanometers. And so. There's about 40 nanometers of bandwidth available. That's about 50 channels. Um, yeah, so that's, that's the method that's used, most commonly used for uh, fiber optic communications nowadays. So this is the grading phased array device that can operate as a multiplexer. Um, maybe a more familiar device is this, which may not look so familiar here. It's drawn for an integrated optic. This is just a, a Moxender interferometer. You have light coming in. Think of this as a beam splitter, so two output paths. Light travels along different paths and gets recombined in essentially another beam splitter. I always think in terms of beam splitters because I work in free space optics, but there's other people who when they see my beam splitter on my table, they say, oh, that's a coupler. Um, so the key here is that if you make the path length different, then the interference condition over here, just like we had over here, is going to be a function of wavelength. Because right? the additional path length produces a phase shift of the two beams that's wavelength dependent through k delta d. 
So if you have a uh, path length difference such that the two wavelengths you want to separate see a phase shift from this delta D that's different by pi, then when one wavelength, when one wavelength travels through the two different paths and adds up constructively here, the other wavelength will add up destructively. And conservation of energy tells us if there's destructive interference, the light has to go somewhere else. The other place it goes is over here. So if wavelength 2 is coming out here, wavelength 1 must be coming out there. So you can walk through the calculation and, uh, and see that explicitly. This is just phasor calculation where you've got um, some phase, say, for the light coming out port 1. All right, the light coming out port 1. There's some phase shift due to the bottom path. There's some phase shift due to the top path. And you're adding these up. And likewise for port 2, you get a different phase shift for the top path and the bottom path. You add them up. I'm not going to go through the rest of the math. It's, it's outlined here. But it's just adding up the phasers and finding uh, terms that look like cosine and sine for the two output ports. And the arguments of those cosines and sines are wavelength dependent. So you get this separation of, of power between the two ports. And this shows the output port power, the power at output port 1 and port 2 is a function of wavelength. And so you see it's uh, sinusoidal. It's, it's not exactly sinusoidal because the wavelength is in the denominator. But it's, it's a smooth variation. So you don't have sharp bandpass filters. This is a much sharper filter because you have interference in multiple beams. Yeah, it's because I didn't explain it. Well, the pi over two phase shift—that's a 90 degree phase shift—and uh, we introduce a 90 degree phase shift when you transmit through. How my definition here was—it was, it was uh, port one had it. Okay, so I had it when you couple across the junction, you get a 90 degree phase shift. That's actually required by conservation of energy. It's equivalent to saying that when you reflect from the junction, you get either a positive reflectivity or a negative reflectivity, depending on which side you reflect from. Okay, that's. They're, they're, this is wavelength independent. I mean, this is just, if you have an input of wave number k, or wavelength lambda, this is how much power you get, or this is the field at port 1, this is the field at port 2. And then when you evaluate that for two different wavelengths, you get two different power versus wavelength curves. Well, so yes, in the diagram, it's showing two different wavelengths being put in. But let's just consider the input field as E0. And the field has a particular wavelength. And we will later on call them lambda 1 and lambda 2. But for right now, we'll just call it. Well, when we consider phasers, we're considering plane waves. Um, so this is a plane wave going into the input. And this is the power in that plane wave at output port 1 as a function of wavelength. Power at output port 2 as a function of wavelength. So superposition tells us if we send in two plane waves, slightly different wavelengths, we should just get power out port 1, or at least the electric field out port 1 and the electric field out port 2 as being. Yes. Right. So that's kind of the point here is that your. Uh, this is not a perfect filter. It's only going to be completely blocking uh, one particular wavelength. And around that wavelength, there's going to be some crosstalk between the channels. And if you want more than two output ports, you can just cascade these. Right, so using different path length differences in the uh, 
second stage as you had in the first stage, you can further separate channels. So a single output port will pass multiple wavelengths. So those multiple wavelengths that get passed can then be split up in successive interferometers. Yeah, you can also use a FabriPro as a wavelength filter. And here I've got a free space FabriPro shown. Um, and that's because I had this slide from a different, different uh, lecture. But um, have we gone through the FabriPro? Yep. I, I know we've done it many times. We've done it in this class. <laughs> so. OK. OK, well, it, it's just a matter of keeping track of the phasers. You have an input field. And that couples by transmitting through a mirror to an output field. And typically when we, um, well, okay, I've done it a little differently here. Um, so the circulating field acquires a phase shift going across here and then a transmission coefficient to produce a transmitted field. The reflected field has a reflectivity coefficient from the input field plus circulating field circulating around and acquiring a phase, and then a uh, transmission. And so, for example, the reflected field has a component that's directly reflected from the input, and has a component from the circulating field that acquires a phase shift as it propagates around, and then gets uh, transmitted through this mirror. Right, and you can write the uh, equations for the circulating, reflected, and transmitted fields. And then you have three equations. Uh, four quantities, you can solve for the three equations in terms of the fourth quantity, or the th three of the quantities in terms of the fourth. So you can solve for the circulating field, the transmitted field, and the reflected field in terms of the input field. Okay, so it's on the slide if, if, if it's not familiar. When we did the, the um, stats? Yes, we did it then? Yeah, okay, that sounds about right. Um, so what's interesting here, and here I've chosen a FabriPro where the two mirrors are identical, or have the same reflectivity, same transmission, and are lossless. And if that's the case, we can look at these expressions and let's say look at the transmitted field. On resonance, this phase shift is an integer multiple of 2 pi, so that phaser his unit amplitude is real, so it's just one. Likewise, uh, well, we don't care about that in the numerator. If this is a lossless mirror, one minus r squared. r squared is the power reflectivity. r is the field reflectivity. So one minus the power reflectivity is the transmission. Yeah. So one minus r squared is t squared. I have t squared in the numerator, they cancel transmitted field is equal to the input field and a phase shift. That phase shift, by the way, is just due to propagating from the input to the transmitted. So it's like the FabriPro is not there. It's completely transmissive at the resonant frequency, a resonant frequency that's wavelength dependent, right? because this round trip path has to be an integer multiple of wavelengths. So it depends on the wavelength. And then you can check that when you're off resonance, the reflectivity is very high. Essentially, if you're off resonance, light doesn't build up in here. You don't see this mirror. What you just see is this mirror. Light reflects off of that mirror with the reflectivity of R. And so check if you want, set, say, e to the 2IKL. Say this is completely anti-resonant. This equals minus 1 instead of plus 1. 1 plus R squared in the numerator, that's about 2 for high reflectivity mirrors. So if R is close to 1, this is about 2 in the denominator. T is very close to 0, essentially 0 transmission. So that's also a wavelength filter, but it's much sharper. Instead of having a transmission, a power transmission is a function of, uh, I'm going to write it as 1 over wavelength. So, that, uh, so instead of having a power transmission that looks like this, as you add more and more beams to your interference, this becomes sharper and sharper. And approaches a comb function. Uh, what do you mean one more beam? 
So what I mean by more and more beams is you increase, so we start with the max ender where two beams interfering, right? And here what we have is we have light coupling in and then circulating between the mirrors. And as the reflectivity gets higher, it will lose less power on each bounce. And so on average, the number of bounces or the number of round trips that the light will take increases. And so in effect, what we have over here is the interference of multiple beams. I mean, it's one beam, but it's been delayed many times. There's a little bit of the beam leaking through on the first bounce, a little bit on the next bounce, and a little bit on the next bounce. And as we have more and more, as light stays in the cavity longer and longer, we have more and more beams interfering. It's not actually more and more, but it's the, uh, in all cases, there's an exponentially decaying amplitude to successive beams. But as that decay becomes slower, it's like having a discrete beam. Uh, comb function? Comb function is just a re repetitive delta function. Okay, so you can approximate this by this. This looks a lot like this uh, phased array multiplexer. This is a star filter, and then this is a star filter in reverse, a combiner. And so what we have here is um, interference of light that's traveled multiple paths. You can, in the limit where there's an infinite number of paths, you can think of this as like a Fabry-Pro cavity with an infinite number of beams. And so the transmission of this is similar to that of the Fabry-Pro cavity, um, in that you have this comb function. Right? And here it's being plotted versus wavelength. I plotted it versus one over wavelength, so it was repetitive and here it's it's uh, the spacing is decreasing due to the fact that the lambda appears in the denominator of the the trig function that will describe this okay so adding more beams sharpens sharpens these resonant peaks it makes sharper sharper filters makes it higher, so the transmittance gets lower off resonance, the reflectance gets higher. So when you say adding multiple beams, you mean making an arm bigger? In the free space case, with the, we had mirrors, make R bigger. Uh, In this integrated case, it means make physically more path. Uh, okay, okay, okay. Okay. You can also make something that is truly a Fabry-Pro cavity in an integrated device. And typically, the way that's done is, uh, well, let me draw. There's a lot of different ways to do it, but let me draw one possible way. Let's say this is the profile of a waveguide. That is a Fabry-Pro cavity. Any thoughts on how that is a Fabry-Pro cavity? Okay, so this corrugated surface is exactly what it shows. It's a corrugation to the size of the waveguide. And because of that, the if you think of uh, this as being so in this region here, where the waveguide size has changed, in that region, the value of beta, the modal propagation constant, is going to be different because it's geometry dependent. So essentially the light is traveling at a different speed inside this region than it is here. It's like having an index of refraction gradient change. And to first order you can approximate that by the fact that um, for the mode amplitude, this region sees more high index core and less low index cladding in this region. So the average index it sees is different here than it is here. Okay, so where have we seen alternating high and low indices, repetitive high and low index materials before? Stacks that get put on the end of a glass straight and form a mirror. So this is a called a fiber, well, in a fiber, it would be called a fiber Bragg reflector. 
in a waveguide, it would just be a Bragg reflector, I guess. Okay, so this is a mirror. That's a mirror. There's some space in between. That's your, your device. So, I mean, you can kind of see why um, it's kind of neat what you can do in building waveguides, in building integrated circuits. Um, instead of having to like take all these components that cost 100 bucks plus a $300 mount and screw them together and stick them on a table and align them, you can just draw this up literally on a computer and then essentially print it out, sometimes literally printing it out on a transparency that uses your mask or whether it's literal transparency or being sent to an e-beam lithography shop or what. But then you just print this onto your material and develop it and this pattern gets imposed in your material, and then it has these, all these interesting characteristics um, with no need to align or adjust. And because everything's in a small size and in a monolithic substrate, things like the spacing between these mirrors does not fluctuate due to acoustic noise or um, air currents or things like that that, that cause a lot of uh, issues in free space devices and require feedback or, or sensing and control. So a lot of interesting things you can do. Same thing with the path length difference. Right? These path length differences are just designed in. And they're, they're really not uh, to first order subject to variation due to environmental disturbances. And you could never do that in a free space system. So would that work if instead of, for that reason, what, what if that was air and we had a substrate on either side? So like a vacuum? Oh. Okay. What if that was? It might take us time and trouble corrugation. That is really weird. Okay, so, oh, so this is uh, air and this is glass? Yeah. Um, well, you wouldn't have a guided mode. So the statement that your mode sees an average index wouldn't be valid. Um, what you would have is, yeah, I would say no. I don't think that would work. Okay. If I find really kind of like push a physical object through something, the light can get through. Impossible. Say that again? So, right, because if that was air, and I can push a physical object through it, like yeah. a finger or a piece of wire or something to oh. through it, but the light couldn't. Well, what about smoke? Okay, so uh, I don't think at this time there's any point in going through uh, the rest of this. We'll cover a little bit of this on uh, Monday, I think. Um, let me just point, let me just go through one more slide here. Um, this is somewhat analogous to the router we showed. This is a, fabric, or a Mox Ender interferometer, again, um, that could be used to s switch light between two different output ports. But if you want to actively control which port it goes through, through an external control, rather than through a parameter of the input light, you could do that by having, for example, a care index material in one of these arms. This is a free space version. That's an integrated version. So nonlinear material. Um, I say nonlinear. If you, say, apply an electric field and through the electro-optic coefficient change the index of refraction of this arm, you're changing the effective path length difference. And so you can turn on or turn off your path length difference, and that can um, couple light to either port. I mean, if you start with no path length difference, the light propagating through directly and you ramp up the path length difference until it switches ports. You can then switch between the two output states depending on your input voltage. Or uh, I mentioned if you could use a care index material. Care material is one that uh, has a third order nonlinearity such that its index of refraction is changed by the intensity of light going through it. So you might have a small signal that has insufficient intensity to affect that index of refraction change, but then you can have a high power optical pump that you shine. It doesn't have to be collinear either. You shine it through that uh, nonlinear element 
and in the presence of the pump, the index changes, and that can switch the light between the output ports. And that's an all optical switch, and that can be done very fast. And there it is. That can be done very fast. So switching times of all optical switches is, can be a couple orders of magnitude greater than electronic switches. We'll end there. And uh, if you're coming on Monday and not coming on Wednesday, please bring any questions you want to address before the end of class. If you're coming on Monday and Wednesday, you might hold your questions for Wednesday to give the people who aren't going to be here on Wednesday the most time. Oh yeah, that's okay. I like that one better. I just didn't want Paul's asking questions, but the fact that he wouldn't know what the answers to my questions are, much better. <laughs> and and um, this optical switch, right? If I put in a high-powered signal, then would I become a router? <laughs>